add a bit of sunshine to your home with Easy Living Furniture's Garden Furniture Sale with stunning dining sets, cracking egg chairs and relaxing sun loungers that are in stock and ready for delivery there really is something for everyone and with an extra 10% off sale prices and free delivery over 399 now really is the time to let your garden shine Garden Sale now on Visit Easy Living Furniture Don't miss out Find your local store online at easylivingfurniture.ie This is an Irish independent podcast. Hello and welcome to Real Health with me, Carl Henry. Conversations are part of our daily life and we probably underestimate how many conversations we have every single day. But how important is conversation? And what is going on in our brains when we're actually chatting to someone? This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Shane O'Mara, neuroscientist and author of the new book, Talking Heads, the new science of how conversations shaped our worlds. Shane, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm delighted to be here and thanks for the invite. Well, I'm looking forward to some some conversation and learning lots more about it. Uh, So we're going to get cracking straight into it. A lot of our day is spent communicating with other people. It's a crucial part of being human and of being human beings, isn't it? It is, and it's how we create, as as I refer to it in the book, as our shared realities together. We bring each other into synchrony with each other. We update each other's memories. We swap gossip. Uh, we do all of the things that make human life together possible through conversation. And you know, it, what's the actual purpose of it? Like, it, it's not just about sharing information between two people, is it? No. What conversation allows us to do is to create new realities together. And we imagine these new realities because typically we're talking about things that will happen. In other words, they must be imagined because they haven't happened yet. And they allow us to think about different ways about how our world might evolve. And it might be just very simple things. You know, what are we going to do at the weekend? Uh, Are we going to go for a picnic? Are we going to, is it going to rain? And we surmise on things. We turn things over together. Or it could be matters much greater than that. It it could be questions to do with, well, uh, how are we going to shape the future of our nation together. Um, I'm going to vote in the election next week or whatever it happens to be. Uh, conversation is at the core of this. Imagination is at the core of this. And bringing to uh, to bear what we have in our memories uh, is at the core of this. So it's kind of a, a tripartite thing. And when people chat about manifestation and, and that kind of self-talk, does that tie into what you're just describing there about how the brain is working, how the brain is functioning, that, that when we, even when we're chatting to ourselves and having self-conversations, that actually you're kind of looking towards the future subconsciously? Yeah, I, I think the manifestation stuff is probably, to my mind, very overstated. Um, it, it, you know, there's a, it, there's a lot of promissory notes going with this. But the, the kind of core idea that the, the kinds of talk that we engage in with each other and the talk that we engage in with ourselves matters is true. But what I would argue is that uh, we humans are social beings and it's very easy for us to live in, in our own heads, but much more effectively is living in each other's heads. Um, and uh, if you want to change your behavior, uh, having people around you to nudge you is much more effective than you uh, trying to nudge yourself, you know, because you can always say to yourself, Ah, bag of crisps today is fine. I won't eat them tomorrow. But if somebody's giving you the little elbow saying, you know, we made this promise together that we're not going to do this, uh, well, then you're much more likely to follow through on that promise that you've made to yourself. 
And of course, you know, time and time again, we hear of the importance of social connection as we age in terms of healthy aging and, and just being and health in general. And we saw the issues of that during over the course of COVID. So that connection of surrounding yourself with, with other people for the conversation, there are huge health benefits to that. There are. And I, I think we, we, we obviously should be thinking about the health benefits, but we should also be thinking about the benefits in terms of our normal uh, lives together. So just to enumerate the health benefits very quickly, I, what we know is that people who are lonely, people who are not connected with, uh, with other people tend to uh, ha- suffer uh, all sorts of conditions. We kind of know this, you know, uh, and this is why we set up helplines and we set up other things to uh, help people to get in touch with each other. But what we also know is uh, that our brain is fundamentally a social brain and it's social in a couple of different senses. One is that it allows us to read what's going on inside the minds of other people. You know, so I'm looking at you here through the camera. Your face is about the size of a stamp. But at the same time, I'm alive to your nodding when you want to interrupt the conversation, all of those kinds of things. And you're probably, at, well, I hope, <laughs> doing the same back to me. You know, so we, we, we are in each other's heads in a really, really important way, uh, which is to say that we mentalize we try and figure out what it is that other people are thinking and that determines what we do next and our brains are they're, they're multitasking as we have a conversation just you know chatting about bits of it there what's actually going on from a, a brain perspective as we have as we chat so they, that's a it's something that people don't really understand because you know conversation is right in front of us all the time um but what we're doing in conversation is responding about as quickly as it's possible to respond to any sort of a stimulus so the, the classic example is how fast can you get moving after you hear the, the the crack of a of a starting pistol and the fastest human response is about a fifth of a second you know so 200 milliseconds that's how fast we respond in conversation but we're doing something much more complicated than just hearing a bang and moving. What we're actually doing is turning sound waves into meaning. We're predicting what it is that you're saying, articulating a response by drawing on not just our motor programs for words, but also on our memories. And we're trying to keep the thread of the conversation going in a a particular direction. This is hard stuff to do. You know, people are going on about ChatGPT and all of these things at the moment. None of these systems can do this in the kind of predictive way that humans can. And chatting about, you mentioned there, that prediction. You know, when we're chatting, am I trying to predict what you're going to say back to me? Are you trying to predict what I'm going to say back to you? Is there an anticipation about what someone is going to say within that conversation? There, there has to be because we're responding so quickly. So what we're doing is filling in very, very fast ahead of time. And we can do it, you know, under conditions, you know, imagine being in a disco when there's loads of noise around you and there's lots of masking and there's lots of movement. We can do it really well under those circumstances. We can do it really, really well when we're driving and the radio is on and somebody's speaking to us. Um, it, what we're doing is is responding really very, very quickly, but we're doing it on the basis of, a huge well of prior knowledge, you know, so I, 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 you know, by the age of whatever, let's say 10 or 11 or 12 or 50 or whatever it happens to be, you've heard tens, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of conversations. You've half listened into things and these all tune uh, brain cells to allow you to participate in conversation in the, in the most magical way. And this is why, and humans love to consume this stuff. This is why podcasts and radio and all of this kind of thing are so popular. The next question I have for you is, is, I'm fascinated in the answer, which is that how you ask a question 
can change the answer that's given from that question. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so this is something that I think is not properly appreciated. So, you know, we the, the nation was uh, entertained and all of those things last week by watching our, our politicians uh, interview uh, uh, a number of, of, of people. We, we, we won't say more than that. But what was really interesting was watching the uh, questioning style of differing politicians. Some made general statements followed by general questions, and they didn't really get much in return. And that's because that kind of question is actually a poor way to interrogate somebody. Uh, going from the general to the specific is actually a bad way to get information. What you're much, much better off doing is asking specific questions and engaging in a gradual reveal through the conversation about what you know. So focusing in on detail and gradually expanding the conversation out yields much, much more information than doing it the other way around. And you know this as an experienced interviewer, a couple of focused questions gets you much, much more than Asher, how are you doing? Asher, I'm fine. <laughs> that doesn't tell you anything. I'll always open with how are you doing. That's that's my general opener to put the guests at ease and then into the specifics from there to kind of try and open, you know, it's, I suppose, it's, the analogy is trying to peel an orange or something like that, isn't it? As opposed to just going straight to the center, you peel it slowly and open it up. Oh, yeah. No, but they, they, obviously the setting of how you do these things is really important. You know, <laughs> we are human after all, and we expect each other to to show uh, a level of respect and courtesy and all of those kinds of things. So a, a good opener like that is absolutely perfect. But you have to get beyond that. Uh, you, you really have to get into details. And and this is why when you hear the phrase people in, uh, in court have been subject to forensic questioning, what they mean is the barrister is taking a person step by step, point by point, element by element, piece of information by piece of information, one step at a time. And they're doing that over a prolonged period of time. That gets you lots of information. Doing it the other way around, throwing general questions out, allows me to throw general answers back. And then, I, so for anyone listening in, you know, that's a really good point for you know uh, a relationship or a work relationship where you're trying to get to a point but how you have the conversation can make getting to that point easier or harder. And, you know, it's a really, it's a very important skill to be able to develop for a successful relationship, be it at home or be it in the workplace. Well, of course, this is, you know, is wrapped into this idea of rapport and engaging in active listening. And this is something that's also a a, a trainable skill, uh, but it's something that people are not terribly well aware about. And, uh, there, there's a phrase that is used by some doctors, which I just love, uh, uh, which is that you need to listen as hard as you can when uh, you're talking to a patient. Um, uh, and the, the joke I, uh, I know among uh, uh, law enforcement is that you've uh, one mouth, but you've two ears, so you should listen twice <laughs> as long as you speak. Um, and, but the key point there is that you're engaging in uh, with what the person is saying to you. You're treating them with respect. You're listening to the detail. And even if you disagree with what the person is saying to you, being willing to be receptive to components of that uh, actually makes people enjoy conversation more and they will reveal more about themselves. And does that apply, presumably it does, to how you have that conversation in terms of technology that, you know, don't have the conversation with your phone out on the table, looking at your phone and having the conversation because the cue, the visual cues of that, that that you aren't listening properly, which really you're not. No, you're not. And what you need to do in those circumstances is just put your phone in your pocket, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you, you do hear at board meetings. And I, and I love this, you know, not, not just for security purposes, but for basic uh, uh, principles of respect. 
everybody has to put their phone on a basket at the door and put mm-hmm. it on silent um, so that you're actually engaged by the the conversation. And meetings that are conducted in that kind of way, of course, are, are much more meaningful and effective uh, for all involved. And that's, I suppose, a very simple tip for people who are struggling, struggling to have conversations with people around them that you put a technology ban in place at a certain time after the kids go to bed or a certain time in the office or whatever. And you have to you have to talk. Or if you go out for dinner, I've, I've seen it in restaurants a huge amount, where the couple are out for dinner, they're both looking at their phones, no one's talking anywhere. And you're like, well, the whole reason for being out is to have a conversation. Yeah, I, or have a phone ban at dinner at the dinner table, yeah. uh, which we do, uh, and it makes a huge difference. <laughs> uh, you just don't bring it there. And uh, you end up having... A conversation about things which you you might otherwise not have had because that damn thing is bleeping away at you. And is there something in that from a societal level? Are are we conversing less because we have text message and WhatsApp and and, and all of that kind of the, the, the technology? Yeah, I think that we're conversing more actually <laughs> because we're in, in engaged in this kind of constant traffic and uh, uh, and what we've done is diversify our our uh, communications. You know. Like the upside of, of social media is that it allows you to be in contact, you know, with distant family members, for example, that you you might have had difficulty in the past, you know, a letter once a year or a Christmas card or whatever. And now you've got, uh, I, I won't name any particular one, but you've got all sorts of ways of maintaining intermittent contact uh, that you wouldn't have been able to do before. Yeah. And I, I think that's actually been a good thing. Good. So we're still negotiating these things. And. I suppose some societies or, or some uh, nations put more of an emphasis on conversation, presumably. Is Ireland uh, good at conversation? Are we bad at conversation? Or where, where, where do we sit generally? Think, yeah, I don't think that's true, actually. I'm afraid to, to be contentious here. Go I think all, all human societies are very, very good at conversation. Whether they admit an outsider readily into a conversation, it's, it's another thing entirely. But uh, <laughs> communication uh, within human societies is, is of an intensely high level. It's continuous. People are always engaged in, in a, a continual traffic of, of information with each other. One of the things you say in the book is that we all have our own autobiographies of ourselves in our heads. What does our brain use to develop that? And how does it decide what to keep and what not to keep? Yeah, so uh, we so the, the, the phrase autobiographical memory is, is one that uh, is used constantly in psychology and in, in neuroscience. And uh, it's at the core of kind of, you know, if you go into your doctor, uh, you tell them what's up with you. Uh, they ask you when you were born, that you tell them that, you know, you've got lots and lots of facts uh, that you can tell about yourself. You've also got feelings to tell about yourself. You know, I, I have a pain in my in my gut and on a scale of one to 10, it's three, but it just doesn't go away, you know, or whatever it happens to be. So you're able to readily provide all sorts of information all the time. And that this is one of these things that humans are, are very, very good at doing. Uh, and what we know is that two core brain areas are involved in, in this process. Uh, one is called the hippocampal formation. And I, I tell the story at the start of the book of a, a famous patient named HM, who essentially had no autobiographical memory. Uh, he could remember things up till he was about 18 or, or 20 and then post a, a, an operation uh, on this part of the brain, the hippocampal formation. He basically didn't update his memory for the next 50 years, uh, which is really, you know, when you think of it, uh, absolutely astonishing. And there's another part of the brain uh, called the anterior thalamus and damage to that part of the brain also causes the same syndrome. Uh, and we now know from careful studies that these two brain areas talk to each other and it's actually the manner of their talking together 
that generates your autobiographical memory. So damage one system or damage the other system uh, and you will have profound problems with, with autobiographical memory. And we know tragically that in cases of dementia, the hippocampal formation in particular is very badly affected. Um, that uh, you can see on brain scans that it's undergone shrinkage, and the degree of shrinkage predicts the degree of memory impairment uh, that the person is likely to have. So we we know that the growth and maturation of this area is really important for memory, and keeping it in good working order is also vital for memory. And. What about when we're having a conversation when we want to change someone's mind? Is there a way or are there cues that we can use to do that? Uh, again, you know, trying to change someone's mind is hard in some senses. It, de- it depends on the identity lens of, of, of the individual, you know. So if you're a scientist um, uh, or an engineer or whoever it happens to be, you know, you're trafficking in, in empirical facts about the real world. Let's say I'm an engineer and I've, I've done a set of calculations on the stresses and strains for a train on a, on a, a train track. Uh, and I got them wrong. Uh, and a couple of my peers come along and can redo the calculations and say, sorry, mate, this weight factor isn't going to happen. I have to change my mind or else mm-hmm. I get fired uh, because I've got it wrong. Uh, you know, so or, or if I'm a scientist and I'm, I've, I've got a particular theoretical Acts to grind, and the data just show you're wrong. You have to give up your 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 point of view. So, um, and this is because the kind of core to the identity of of an engineer or an accountant, even you know, you have to get the numbers right, is is around empirical fact. the The problem is is when you wrap uh, this into your own identity, uh, and uh, it, it, believing an X, irrespective of the consequences, is core to who you are uh, as a person. And, you know, in, in, okay, let's take a, a distant past example. Uh, you know, the religious wars in Europe from, I guess, the 1400s through to probably not very long ago, all revolved around aspects of, of doctrine that actually people don't care about anymore, but were absolutely core uh, to people's beliefs. Uh, did you support X version of the Bible or Y version of the Bible, one or the other? Uh, and we resolve this by going and putting our contentions to the sword, uh, which, you know, is a very common way of, of doing things. And we, we look back on that now and think, well, what were they thinking? Well, what they were thinking was they have a system of belief. They have a set of facts as they see it, which is the unerrant uh, uh, word of God in a Bible. Um, and their vi- version was the one and everybody else was wrong. And we now, of course, take the view that you shouldn't settle these differences uh, by killing each other. We should thankfully, just... thankfully. Well, <laughs> the world's getting towards that place, that's for sure. Final question. Talk to me about gossip then, right? So gossip is the is the fuel of conversation. And it's, it's actually crucially important for social connection conversation and that audible health. Yeah, so gossip is actually, it has a bad name, and that's because of negative and pernicious gossip. But it turns out, actually, you know, if you measure gossip in, in that people engage in, um, and you can do this in lots of ways uh, using smartphones and other things. It turns out most gossip is positive. People are passing on pieces of information that facilitate your life in a variety of different ways. Um, they're telling you, he's a good person, he's a bad person, she's a good person, she's not such a good person. Here's the reasons. Um, so, gossip in that sense allows you to stop having to learn something from brutal personal experience. It shortcuts things for you. 
Uh, but it also has another uh, feature that people commonly overlook. We use gossip um, as a way of controlling our own behavior because what we don't want to be is the object of gossip. Uh, you know, <laughs> we don't want to be in, in a place where people are saying nasty things about us because we have behaved badly. Uh, so we avoid certain behaviors. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't want to be known as a cheat. We don't want to be known as a liar. And people will call you out for that. Maybe not to your face, but certainly will behind your back. But we do love talking about ourselves, don't we? We do, absolutely. And about 40% of what we say to each other is uh, <laughs> personal revelations of one description or another. And again, that drives conversation. So in some respects, having the, you know, that sense of chatting about yourself, it's a good thing. You know, once people, you know, depending on the level, depending on the level of it, but yeah. Yeah, no, personal revelation is kind of at the core of normal conversation, isn't it? You know, what did you do last night? Well, we went down to the pub and we watched the match and uh, such and such was there and we had great crack. And what did you do? Oh, we couldn't go out last night. One of the kids was sick, but uh, I got to watch the highlights. And, you know, kind of the grease of everyday life is facilitated by this constant interchange of what you did, what you're doing, what you're planning to do. And in general, we're truthful to each other. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we uh, say what we think or, or what we happen to believe at that moment in time. We tend not to lie to each other. Um, you know, if, if you trust too much, you end up being a con or a mark for a con man. You trust too little, you end up being paranoid. You know, so somewhere in the middle uh, is, is really where you want to be. We've had a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed that. Uh, your book, Talking Heads, is out in bookstores uh, nationwide. Tell me about, you have a newsletter as well, haven't you? You have a Substack. I have a Substack. Uh, it, you can sign up to it at brainpizza.substack.com. And uh, I do usually a weekly newsletter uh, at that website, where which will be delivered to your inbox, or you can read it on the app. And uh, it treats of all manner of things to do with brain behavior and life. So I'd be very grateful to your listeners if a few of them decided to sign up. Shane Amar, thank you so much for joining me and the very best of luck with the book, Talking Heads. We've had a great chat. I've really, really enjoyed it, folks. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You know where we are, realhealthatindependent.ie, at Carl Henry PT on Instagram. Have loads of conversations next week and we shall see you next week for more. Slongafoe. So